electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Fast Disney Doldrum, shares of the media and entertainment giant dropping after the company posted a decline in streaming subscribers. But can Bob Iger recapture the magic? The man who wrote the book on Disney will join us to break down the results. And Treasury turmoil, the yield on the shortest term T-bill hitting its highest level in at least two decades. One of our traders lays out how they are playing this move and what happens if the U.S. does, in fact, default on its debt. Plus, Google gains Alta's ultra pullback and a pot stock loses its buzz. We're digging into a couple of stocks, making some big moves today. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq Market Site in the heart of Times Square on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Courtney Garcia, and Steve Grasso. And we start off with Disney's post-earnings drop. The entertainment giant shares near an after-hours lows after reporting a decline in Disney Plus subscribers but improved streaming losses. The conference call is underway. CNBC's Julia Borson is listening in. Julia. Melissa, Disney CEO Bob Iger is saying that the company is on track to meet or exceed its target of $5.5 billion in cost savings. He also announced a new approach to the streaming business. The company plans to roll together an app that combines Hulu content into Disney Plus by the end of this year, what Iger called a significant step towards creating a growth business. He said this will create more opportunities for advertisers while also driving engagement for users, which would, of course, then minimize churn. He did note that they will continue to offer separate Disney Plus, Hulu and ESPN Plus apps and give that as another option. He also announced plans to launch an ad tier on Disney Plus in Europe by year end. He noted that they're just starting to scratch the surface around the ad potential of Disney Plus. And as for the ad-free version, Iger saying they do expect to raise prices on Disney Plus by the end of this year. The company also announcing that they will be removing certain content from the streaming platforms, part of a curation process, and taking an impairment charge of between one and a half and $1.8 billion. Meanwhile, worth noting that losses at Disney's streaming division were smaller than analysts expected, a loss of $659 million in the quarter, down from a more than $1 billion loss in the prior quarter. Melissa? Julia, um, to put the subscriber loss overall into perspective, I mean, this was mostly because of hot star losses because they didn't get cricket. So in actuality, their, their core subscribers that they have right now, they're more profitable in theory than the prior mix. Yes. Yeah, I think the attention has really shifted to that average revenue per user number. And what's interesting is if you look at the breakdown of average revenue per user, there was actually growth in the average revenue per user of 20% in the U.S. and Canada. So those subscribers are paying 20% more. But if you look at those hot star subscribers in India, they're actually paying 20% less than they did a year ago. So a tale of two very different types of subscribers to Disney Plus. Obviously, um, they want to be maximizing profitability. They've talked a lot about cost cutting, the fact that their losses are declining, but they really are focused on these price increases. I mean, the fact that they already rolled out a price increase and now they're going to be planning to increase prices on the ad free tier, it looks like they really want to make sure that everything they're doing in the streaming business is not chasing growth at all costs. All right, Julia, thanks. Keep us posted on developments from that conference call. Tim, you own this one. What'd you make of this quarter? 
you know, the ARPU number, so the average revenue per user, 714 versus 595 last quarter, that, that's really impressive. Pricing power is, is impressive here. Um, the, the concept of a lot more ad supported in the model for a company that really knows how to do this, certainly from their days in linear TV and what we see going on with Netflix. So, so uh, you know, that that's all great. The streaming losses you just explained, uh, parks are excellent. Um, studios got some... Got, got a few things going on, and there's not been great demand. There's been a lot of promotional expenses around Indiana Jones and other dynamics that we're hearing about that are eating into operating losses. Um, the, the problem is that this, there's not a lot to get excited about in this stock right now. And, and, and the share price, which is basically at, at, at a five-year level of lost money, if you think about it on some level, um, you could have bought this stock you know, at, at 95 bucks uh, that, that much farther back, despite all that's going on. It's great that the company's more focused on streaming profitability. Uh, it is great. That, that you have, uh, I think, the ability here to have different levers to pull. Uh, the assets are great at Disney. Uh, the streaming business is better than it was. I, I guess it's half, half full on the glass. Courtney, your take? Yeah, and I don't think people should be necessarily be subs- uh, subscribed, surprised at what you're seeing <laughs> with the subscribers right now. Because um, Iger already said this, that they were going to focus on profitability not necessarily growth, and that's exactly what you're seeing with these numbers today. And really, I think this is trading on specifically their streaming services, but their parks were actually came in really strong, and I think was expected to come in strong. And that's what I like about them over, you know, comparing them to a Netflix, for example, is they have such a better diversified business that continues to be really strong and will offset even, you know, some loss in subscribers. So I actually do still like this here. I think you're, you're just seeing some negativity on the streaming specifically. I think the parks, uh, both Tim and Courtney touched on it. The parks are just killing it at this point. And when I look at a chart and I look back to the pandemic low, should this be in the same ballpark as a pandemic low when we knew the parks were going to be shut down? The answer is no. It's in the same ballpark. You're looking at a stock where to trade $80 or thereabouts on the pandemic low. It's, it's, it's trading now in the, in the mid-90s, mid to upper 90s. So if they're going to be more efficient, if it's going to be streaming, now maybe it shouldn't be as it rebounded above $200 a year later after the pandemic low. But this is giving the stock away. Just to make it very simple and not get caught up in all the different numbers, way too cheap but giving us i mean but but the the multiple is not giving it away at all well the well the multiple if you look back to where the multiple was during a year after the after the pandemic they were not making money it was it was exactly it was crazy the multiple that people were willing to pay now it seems like it's a true value stock i i actually disagree i i think that if we look at what was happening during the pandemic a bunch of things that were so incredibly favorable to Disney launching a streaming business, right? You had people stuck at home. You had money that was free. You had growth numbers that were just sky's the limit. And therefore, valuations that in hindsight were just way too overdone. So so to me, I think Disney's not, this isn't a huge discount here. Um, I just think that, I mean, if you look at what's happened in the space, if you look at Paramount, which I sold after that disastrous Mm -hmm. quarter, just couldn't take it anymore, they actually, you know, had subscriber growth. And so here I'm wondering, okay, they raised some prices, I think $3 on 8 to 11 That's a kind of a hefty price increase for a household that's a little bit strapped. I wonder how much more, how much more can they do for raising prices to the extent that that's part of the bull story? I don't really know. Um, so I think it's actually not crazy. I'm just pretending you're yeah. Dan, so I'm just taking the other side of whatever you say. It's fine. It, well, well the, the point I was making is when it traded to the low when parks were closed and they were fa- factoring as it was never going, everything was death. 
lit literally and figuratively, everything was death and the parks were never going to come back. Those parks numbers were 16 billion. But how do you view the streaming service right. in conjunction with this? Because now yeah, so you should get a higher multiple. You should get a higher multiple. But streaming has been a disaster it's for been a drag. and it's it's in an environment right. They yeah. have to focus on profitability, but they're in an environment where Netflix has proven. Sure. I, mean, I want to say it's proven to be king, but I mean it's proven to have this advantage, this legacy incumbent advantage. Tim, you own. Both, and they should be right? the yeah. king of content, right? Well, and Netflix Disney should. Yeah. yeah. They, they, Disney should be. We've got a writer strike coming up. There's a lot of you know speculation who's better off here and and I think Disney's going to do okay and I think the, the streaming slate seems to have a pretty big backlog for both Disney and Netflix but um, Netflix is a more exciting story I mean they're generating cash flow it's a simpler business it's easier to assess um, I you know I, I can't wait till we're going to speak to Jimmy Stewart about all of this because like the streaming companies are looked at so differently than they were two years ago I mean how wrong were we very I guess um, or is this just that growing pain that they all need to go through to figure out profitability because right now, uh, those losses are costing everyone. All right. For more on Disney's earnings, let's bring in New York Times columnist James Stewart, who joins us on the Fast Line. He is also a CNBC contributor. Jim, great to have you with us. What did you make of this quarter? Well, I, I guess I'd call it modest progress, given the Iger strategy of focusing on um, cost and cost cutting and eventually profitability. It'll be interesting to see if he's going to come up with an estimate of profitability on streaming. So we did see, you know, a, you know, an a decline in the in the losses at streaming, but at the same time, you see those secular forces that are afflicting Disney. The fairly significant decline in the linear programming, you know, the traditional TV cable uh, business, which is going down. And again, I don't want to get it too much into accounting, but you know, the overall operating income is not as good as it looks because they had that billion-dollar one-time charge a year ago. Uh, so there was actually, when you strip that out, it was a, a little decline again in the, in the quarterly earnings. I think investors were a little bit disappointed in that. You know, great performance at the theme parks, no question about it. But you've had the reopening in China. Theme parks is, can only grow so much. We know that you can only raise prices so much more there. You can only squeeze so many more people into this park. Um, and so that's just kind of a given. I think streaming is still the story. And we still haven't seen a model here that looks like it's ever going to uh, rival the profitability that they enjoyed in, in, the, in the glory days of cable. So do you think that the best days of Disney are behind it? I mean, I, I'm just wondering, you know, <laughs> you know, Iger, you know how he, you know, what his sort of playbook is. And I'm, I'm just wondering what you think of how he's thinking of this, of the return here. I mean, it seems like it's going to be harder than ever for Disney to reclaim its so-called magic, given the competition in the streaming landscape, and that's sort of the, the focus right now of investors. How can they yeah, get to this, profitability there? This is tough. I mean, look, Disney's a great company, and I don't think they had any choice. They, you know, they were confronted with this situation um, that you know, really shook up that wonderfully profitable world they enjoyed for so long, and they had to react. But this is a fiercely competitive environment. I was just in L.A., uh, for a while, and I talked to a lot of a lot of studio people who were saying that you know Netflix and Amazon and you know to some extent Apple the the spending race is still underway. They're still pouring the billions of dollars into that, and Disney, if they want to play in that league, has no choice but to compete. Now the rider strike is going to help them probably more than anyone else because there's there's an enforced truce in the arms race there. How long that goes on, we don't know, but that's only pushing it down the road because spending is all going to have to come back. How much can you cost cuss and still maintain that subscriber base, which is now obviously has kind of flattened out? 
if you cut costs too much and you don't have the new programming, you know, people, it's so easy, you know, you just stop the subscription and wait till they come up with something new that you want. It's a very, very tough business, I think. And you've got these unbelievably deep-pocketed competitors in Amazon and Netflix that you're up against. James, when you see the offering where he's combining Hulu and Disney, is that just out of the uh, mere the, the sheer fact that most people in a certain uh, age group are never going to buy Disney streaming? Do you think that's going to move the needle for him? Because that would be a little more palatable if you have a Hulu along with the Disney, because then you'll just buy it and you'll, you'll get it as a bonus. Yes. I mean, there's no question that, that the Disney Plus brand is very, like, family-focused and, you know, child-friendly, teen. You know, they've got, and then that's good in some ways. It's got a very clear identity. But it's not going to be big enough to get to the Netflix and Amazon numbers. And if, if streaming really is the scale business that everyone says it is, and as far as I can tell, it is, because there's almost no marginal cost when you add another subscriber Yes, they've got to get beyond that core brand identity, and Hulu may be a path to do that. Jim, Is thanks it for your thoughts. We'll have to see. Yep. Uh, appreciate your thoughts, as always. Jim Stewart of the New York Times. Um, what do we want to know on the conference call, Tim? Well, we want to hear a little bit about just the, the soap opera in Florida um, and what that means with, with DeSantis and, and this feud. I, I think to the extent that we want to get a little bit more insight in, into uh, their, you know, how they're talking about this new mega bundle. Uh, I mean, it is a new concept and it is uh, this, the sense that the companies that used to be part of the, the, the cable bundle and, and the linear TV heyday um, are, are thinking about things a little bit more, a little bit more of an ad model. And I, and I think this is just the part that I think we're all struggling with what we're supposed to pay for these companies. I mean, I look at like a, a Warner Brothers Discovery, which has been so destroyed. But if you actually look at the numbers they just posted and they said they're going to be profitable a year in advance of, of where other people had. I've seen a lot of analysts run to actually upgrade this stock. And, and if you look at it on a free cash flow yield on 24, it's pretty exciting. So um, I, I, I say a lot of these companies that are especially the media focused part of their businesses are things that have been priced down. The streaming we know lose his money. Um, I, I, you know, I think we've written streaming down to nothing. And, and I think it's getting kind of interesting here. Karen, I, have we written it down to nothing? I well, don't know. It feels like it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, if that's the case, then yes. And maybe it's one of your things are, you know, most attractive when they go from terrible, which seems to be right now in the streaming space to just bad if there is some improvement. Well, and, and to but, Steve's yeah. point, sorry, because I mean, Steve was talking about like, look, the, the parks business and, and seemingly studio in a different world where studio um, are kind of clicking away here. And uh -huh. so the, the, the streaming business is, is, is to me almost been priced to nothing in that sense. Remember though, they do have a ton of debt. Yep. I mean, it's not, uh, it's not, I'm not saying they have a balance sheet problem at all. I'm just saying, you know, that's another expense and they're not gonna be able to roll it over so cheaply. Right. Coming up, we are watching the after hours action in Robinhood. Shares on the move after reporting. We'll bring you the numbers straight ahead. But first, shares of Alphabet jumping on some AI updates. The headlines from the company's developer conference next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs. 
who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alphabet topping the tape today as a tech giant hosts its annual developers conference announcing a new folding phone and what's next for AI in search. Our dear Jabosa joins us now in the Fast Line with more on this. I imagine the 4% uh, gain in the stock today was not because of the foldable phone, but it was because of AI. <laughs> it was interesting because from the first portion of that conference, it was kind of just flat. There wasn't a lot of excitement around it. And then when Sundar Pichai came out, it showed how search would work with its Search Labs project. That is when the stock really took off and kind of tells you what investors have been looking for, right? They wanted to know that generative AI isn't going to kill search. It's going to make it stronger. But here's Sundar Pichai in his own words on AI. We are at an exciting inflection point. We have an opportunity to make AI even more helpful for people, for businesses, for communities, for everyone. We've been applying AI to make our products radically more helpful for a while. With generative AI, we are taking the next step. With a bold and responsible approach, we are reimagining all our core products, including search. So it wasn't just words, because Sundar Pichai has been saying something similar for a very, very long time. There was a very effective, it was about 90-second video, which I urge anyone to watch, where it showed how this new idea of search would work. It pulls in not just those 10 links that you get from a typical Google search, but videos and images and suggestions and summaries. It didn't displace the advertisers as much as sort of change the model for them. And that was what was so key and critical. And they showed it in a very effective way through some scripted demos and some live demos. But basically, Center for China, the company had a lot to prove because at the last AI event, um, it was really botched in terms of these demos. So the fact that it went out smoothly and that it showed a new way of search is, you know, what, what got investors excited and perhaps gives Google the edge for now over Microsoft and ChatGPT. We'll see how Satya Nadella and, and team respond, though, to, to this next phase of the AI arms race. Well, it was smart to do a video demonstration as opposed to a live demonstration. <laughs> it really limits the, the room for error there. But, I mean, the implication, Deidre, that you were saying is that um, they're showing how search works and it wasn't displacing advertisers. So, so, therefore, the baseline is that this new kind of generative search would be as profitable as, as search right now. As profitable is a good question, and maybe that's why the stock didn't go up 8%. It only went up 4% because that's still a big question. We don't know exactly how it's going to work. You know, the Google team would say, oh, it's going to give them more tools to be more creative and better brand awareness, but we don't know that yet, and we know that search as it exists right now for Google is such a profitable business. How can anyone ever replicate that? But I think what he did do effectively is show that they are bringing AI from the back end, front and center. Deidre, thank you. Deidre Bosa at the Google's Developers Conference. Karen, you had a trade on 
for this. I did. I got a little when Google sold off on all this Microsoft stuff. I put on a 100-110 uh, that expires next Thursday and it would, uh, next Friday rather. It was a good day to take it off. I, I, I liked so many things about it that I liked. I liked that they actually had something big and, you know, showy. We always joke about, you know, the AI pixie dust being spread around and Google can't seem to find any. They found it today. And I think, um, you know, the idea of Google's got nothing in AI, that's absurd, right? We've known that's absurd, but um, here they were proving that. Some of the things were really interesting and fun and some of them were kind of, you know, the force clapping by all the developers there, I guess. You know, when they, the fondue pizza, I don't know, I didn't really, or the writing the children's What's fondue drink? pizza? Yeah, it was yeah, a whole thing uh, of, if you really And why don't they to, serve you know. that to us here? <laughs> they might. Um, good. But some of the other things about the phone, I thought there was some really interesting elements. They also tried to really be uh, mindful of the um, wanting to protect your privacy. So mm. one of the things that I found was interesting was this tracking. We will tell you if you have a tracking device that is not yours on your phone. Oh. And also, I think Apple was involved with that as yeah. well. I thought that was really interesting. The market is clear. or People are concerned about that. So, um, and they had some goofy, fun things with what you could do with the, um, your background page, things like that, or your screensaver. And I, I thought they did a really good job. They showed they are very much in the race. To your question about how profitable will it be, I don't know. But they have been considered to be asleep for the last two or three months. And, I mean, they got a lot of share to protect. Yeah. So, I mean, they got it. That's a hard job to protect share against Microsoft, who's so gung ho to take some. So the, I think the different valuation reflects uh, fear that Google will lose some. But I, I still think it's too wide. Court. Yeah. And I, I do think they knew what they needed to do today. Right. I mean, we've even seen this with like Facebook, who stopped talking about the metaverse. Now they just talk about A.I. because clearly that's exactly what investors want to hear is A.I. and cost cutting. And that's like the magic formula right now. Um, I do think all of this is really positive right now. Um, it is still one of your more expensive stocks. And we'll probably talk about this later because we're still in this higher for longer likely rate environment that I think is you know, likely going to continue to put some pressure on these. So we do have a position in these. You want to own your Googles by all means. I'm not actively adding to it right now um, on this news, but, I, but I'm really happy to see the, the way that they announced today. Coming up, Robinhood on the rise, the company adding users for the first time in two years. We'll bring you the headlines from the quarter in the conference called Next, plus the debt ceiling recession fears. It's all causing a lot of commotion in the treasury market. How one of our traders is playing the moves. You're watching Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. We're getting some headlines out of Disney's conference call. Let's get back to Julia Borston. Julia. Well, Bob Iger fielding a question about Hulu, saying that in the last earnings call and recently he's been saying that everything is on the table when it comes to Hulu, but that in the past three months that he has been studying this, he said it's clear that the combination of the content on Disney Plus with general entertainment, 
Of course, Hulu as general entertainment is a very strong combination from a subscriber perspective in terms of retention and also advertising. So he said he indicated that at this point, the deal with Hulu is in the hands of Comcast and they'll have to have that negotiation with them. Um, but they are they do see real value in having general entertainment such as Hulu combined with Disney Plus. So he said if Hulu is that solution, we are bullish about it. Of course, there already is this pre-negotiated deal um, with Comcast uh, in which Comcast had already pre-negotiated to sell Disney its minority stake, guaranteeing um, Disney a price valuing Hulu um, it's in, in its entirety at a minimum of twenty seven and a half billion dollars. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that valuation plays out. But certainly this is news that Iger is so committed to um, to having that general entertainment piece. And it sounds like it'll be likely through Hulu. One other note here, Melissa, um, he was asked a question about AI. He joked that he hopes that someday he hopes that the, the questions on an earnings call can be answered with AI. But he did say that AI is being used to create efficiencies, um, ultimately to better serve consumers. But they already do understand how it could be disruptive and difficult to manage, especially from an IP perspective. And they have their lawyers working on that now. We see Disney shares now down over 4%. Back over to you. Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Let's get to an earnings alert on Robinhood shares jumping after the fintech posted a top-line beat in its first increase in monthly active users in two years. That call is underway. Christina Partsnevelis joins us with the details. Christina. Well, Melissa, the online brokerage still hasn't posted a profit since going public in July 2021, but its Q1 results show that it's paring back operating expenses, increasing monthly active users, which you mentioned, and posted an average revenue per user of $77, up from $64 a user last quarter, driven primarily, which was just mentioned on the call, by securities trading and net interest income. On the media call that just happened before the analyst call, I was able to ask the CFO about reducing operating expenses since that's been a major overhang for the company. He said they're going to continue to look at third party spending. They're going to scrutinize, quote, all incremental dollars and then even question whether open job postings are necessary or if certain roles need to be backfilled. He called it a pruning stage. The company also announcing that next week they will offer 24 hours of trading five days a week, trading names like Apple and Amazon and Tesla but that's really not expected to move the needle too, too much. But other platforms and trading at 8 p.m., so maybe now you can satisfy that itch to trade at 1 o'clock in the morning. The company also plans to enter into retirement advisory services. They also just mentioned that on the media call. The CEO will be on CNBC tomorrow at 8.45 Eastern. Squawk Box shares are still higher with this beat. Melissa? Christina, thanks. Christina Partsnevelis on Hood. What's the catalyst for Hood? What's going to move the needle here? Well, profitability is certainly a good place to start, um, and and they haven't proven that. It was a really good quarter sequentially, right? I mean, if you if you look at their their assets grew twenty six percent. Maybe if you look at what markets did, and you think about what a lot of their uh, investors hold, the demographic of the people in that. But but again, in terms of the 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 growth sequentially in the customer base, but a 16% growth in revenues. But I, I get back to where we were with this company. What sets them apart? What is really their special sauce? What do they do? 24-7 on, on you know, brokerage, who cares? Doesn't do anything. So um, I don't think they have really the scale to compete. You know, Improvements in net interest income and whatnot, I, really, I don't think that's something to get excited about in the new world we're in. So, um, but you know, this is a stock, uh, surprisingly, only a 3% short interest. I just looked at that. I thought it was gonna be a lot higher and would have expected that that would be a reason to maybe get behind the stock for the next couple of days. It's having a decent pop in the after hours. 
On a technical basis, the stock came into today trading below all of its moving averages. Now it's above the 50 and the 100-day. The 200-day is at 969. And if you go back and look at all the rally that, that happens now, unless it crosses over to the upside 1020, this is just another lower high. So I wouldn't get sucked in until you get trading above the 200 and then above $10. I mean, that 50 and 200-day moving average were basically flat. Yeah. Just across, I mean, if Carter Braxton Worth were here, I feel like he'd say a pair of twos. Yeah, yeah. He's to the penny. To the penny. <laughs> but buying it here, no one has an edge. Yeah. Coming up, Beauty buys Karen eyeing Ulta shares after the stock's big pullback. Why she thinks the stock is about to get a big makeover. But first, tracking Treasury is the move in the one-month T-bill that caught one of our traders' eyes. More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks closing mix after this morning. Cooler than expected inflation report. The Dow ending just in the red, down 30 points, well off the lows of the day. The S&P up half a percent. And the Nasdaq leading the gains up more than 1%. A move in the Treasury markets catching our traders' eyes. The one-month T-bill rising to levels not seen since at least August 2001. The yield now at 5.4%. Karen, you mentioned this as a trade that you were in the other night. Monday, yes, I and I find it so fascinating, right? Clearly, there is this hitch in the curve because of the default, win- default occurring prior to the maturity of the one-month bill. So that's the reason why it's there. I just think the most likely outcomes are good, which is it, the most likely it pays on time. Mm-hmm. The second most likely it pays shortly after on time. The third most likely it doesn't pay on time, but does t- continue to accrete interest and ultimately gets paid. And the last one being really bad. But I don't. I think the likelihood of what is the really bad one? The really bad one is just you know Russia type default of oh, U.S. Okay. debt. All right, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Um, And so I think that it's a really interesting scenario. Tomorrow, if you go on Treasury Direct, you can bid on bonds. There's a you can you don't have to bid. You can say I'm going along with the group, however, whatever that price may be. And they're doing 35 billion of one year's tomorrow, May 11th. And then they are one one month rather. So June, I don't know if it's 10th or 11th. you you'll 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 know but you could know before that it wouldn't be shocking that we just see the can kicked Mm -hmm. that's okay too right so your base case scenario is that you will eventually get paid my base case is i will get paid on time you i will get but even if it's on you're you're i hope you get paid on time i hope we're not i mean you better get paid on time i I did look at california defaulted on their debt they issued ious Mm -hmm. at the same rate at whatever debt was maturing um, which happened to be three and three quarters then. And it wasn't that long that you had IOUs and then got the, you know, the payment in arrears with interest. All right. That could happen. All right. Well, for more on all of this, let's bring in Bill Foster, sovereign analyst at Moody's Investor Service. Uh, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us to answer these burning questions. Is Karen's trade, does that sound right in terms of the scenarios that she's laid out? Well, we, we certainly expect the the U.S. government to continue to honor its debt. We don't expect an interest payment to be missed. Uh, we That's our base case. Uh, there's a lot of noise, obviously, around the debt limit should issue. We've seen the same thing in prior episodes, but ultimately we think the deal will get done and the X date won't be crossed and the Treasury will continue to pay its debt on time and in full. I want to make clear to our audience that you are an analyst at Moody's. You're not you don't you wouldn't be part of the downgrading of, of U.S. debt. But is it possible that the U.S. doesn't even have to default 
to have a downgrade happen to it. And so then what happens to the curve? Well, I, I am the sovereign analyst that covers the U.S. government. So, so the, you would the downgrade the debt. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I'm responsible for the, for the sovereign credit rating. Um, but, but ultimately, the short answer is our definition of a default is missed interest payment. Any other payments that, are, that might be missed with regards to Social Security, prioritization of other payments, um, that's not a default by, by our standards. So it, it would have to be a missed interest payment would need to occur for, for a downgrade to happen. Oh, okay. Because I, I was under this, for some other ratings agencies, as I understand it, it, would, it could just be, you know, sort of like a, a terrible functioning of the U.S. government could trigger a downgrade. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I guess the question, Bill, is, is on August 5th of 2011, S&P downgraded the U.S. from a AAA to a, a AA+. Plus. Which it still uh, is. And, and, and so, right and that was, a, that was seemingly a day the music died, even though it really wasn't. And Karen brought this up on one of our shows recently. You actually had a massive rally in the Treasury market after that for different reasons. Some of them were because of what was going on in European sovereign markets. But can you just talk about, again, the perception um, of, of the U.S. And, and the credit worthiness as it goes into an overall rate? And, and, you know, maybe what S&P was thinking, but what you might be thinking, uh, despite the fact that they're going to pay and until they default. Well, you know, from our perspective, the U.S. has a very strong credit profile uh, and, and the things that stand out for the U.S. versus other AAA rated economy. AAA obviously is the highest rating that we have, but 12 sovereigns with that rating. Uh, the fact that the U.S. has the, the global reserve currency uh, of choice to dominance just below 60 percent of global reserves uh, are in the U.S. dollar. Uh, and then you have the deepest, most liquid bond market in the world, the Treasury bond market. That removes the risk of any uh, foreign exchange risk for the U.S. government or any funding risk generally. It's also the largest economy in the world, obviously, and extremely resilient to shocks. And we've seen that time and time again. That really helps buffer the the, the credit profile for the U.S. Uh, even in a situation where we might have a missed interest payment, th- those types of things really help uh, keep it close to AAA. If we had a missed interest payment, the scenario would be first, if, if it was resolved within 15 days, we would keep that rating very close to AAA, probably at AA1, provided there was a resolution within the next, before the next interest payment in 15 days, and the debt limit issue was resolved. So there's a little bit of a grace period for the United States. <laughs> no, to, no to the Treasury, no to lawmakers. <laughs> You've got this window of time here. For a downgrade. Yeah, yeah, to prevent a downgrade, to prevent a downgrade. Um, Bill, great to have you with us. Thanks for clarifying these issues for us. We do appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Bill Foster. So now, now we know. He's he the guy. Really does it. He is the guy. <laughs> he is the guy. It's a big shot. Yeah. And he, he, he holds the market. I think we have to call him his... Billy Big Shot from now <laughs> yeah, on. I think we have to call him Mr. Foster. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> um, but it sounds like your trade is... Well, he expects it. It's a good one. I don't know. Maybe he can't opine and say, well, it could. I I hope so. I think so. I think so. I mean, I would want to say cooler heads will prevail in in the government, but that would just be silly to say (laughs) that. Yet, I do think that will happen. We'll get a deal. All right. There are a lot of clouds hanging over the markets these days, but nobody seems to have told the VIX. (laughs) The CBOE volatility index is sitting below 17, not far from its lowest levels of the year. But why? Let's bring in Amber's group co-CIO, Chris Sidiel. Chris, great to have you with us. Um, So many people say, you know, but the VIX is 17, the VIX is 16. What's going on here? We've got so many regional bank crisis. We've got the debt ceiling. Are there technical reasons why the VIX is suppressed? Yeah, well, I think it's important to understand a couple of things, right? The VIX right now is still trading at a decent premium to what realized volatility is doing right now, right? So S&P 30 days realized volatility is roughly about 13. 
the VIX is around 17, VIX June futures are at 2050, right? So although volatility may feel low in relation to all the fear that's going on, the actual price moves in the S&P really doesn't warrant a bigger implied volatility move, right? The market moving at 10 to 50 basis points a day, with that it's really difficult to get, you know, big spikes in implied volatility with that price action. However, you know, what we noticed uh, throughout the year is that the hedges that were put on in 2022, you know, a lot of people kind of telegraphed the whole inflation theme. It really, it really led traders to, to kind of get exhausted in their appetite for volatility. And it can be very brutal just buying puts and losing money. So a lot of people are puking up that type of exposure, especially this year. And I think one of the other bigger points is that the implementation of these short dated options have been used as a form of yield enhancement. So what you're seeing is a lot of advisors are engaging in these type of systematic option selling programs that just naturally lead to suppress volatility across the board which obviously has implications on VIX and implied vol. Chris, uh, it's Tim, and thanks for joining us. The, the, the concept of volatility in a world where the Fed is always there and the Fed put has been there is different than a world where the Fed is seemingly going to let the market do what it wants to do. I'm not sure I believe that the Fed is going to do that. But do you think about this from a structural perspective and maybe from a secular perspective if we're in this era where the Fed really does have to be focused on inflation? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think a lot of traders, uh, including myself, are kind of calling bluff on the fact that, you know, the Fed put is no longer there. Um, I think what you're seeing is this this uh, hesitancy from the market to believe that the Fed won't be supportive of equity markets. And I think the banking crisis kind of reaffirmed that. Right. You saw the Fed immediately step in and, and, and talk about you know, really hammering that down. And that's why you saw implied vol get destroyed. <laughs> you know, implied vol gave it all up w w within a week. Um, so I think, you know, market participants aren't really believing that. Chris, great to see you. Thanks for answering our questions. Chris Sidio of Ambrose. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, here's an ugly chart, but our currency is a beautiful buying opportunity. In Alta coming soon, find out what level she's watching to make up some ground. Wow. That next <laughs> trade is next. So That's when he's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Alta staging a major pullback this month, down 8.5% since touching all-time highs on May 1st. The stock, though, still up more than 7% on the year. But is now the right time to buy this one? Karen, well, what do you think? okay. What do I think? I got to give it not kudos to me because I owned it at 562. <laughs> I've owned it for a long time, but it traded up to 562, which was an all-time high, uh, and didn't sell it. But then kudos to Guy. I said, look at this. It opened on its high and closed a lot lower. And he's like, ah, oh, this is terrible. This is this is you know, look out below. Maybe at like 485, you could buy it. And so. Excellent call by Guy. He was actually, it's been down $58 since then. It actually was down five bucks lower than that earlier today. So it's getting very close. And I can tell I'm just not going to be able to wait and I'm going to end up buying it here. I really like it. They'll report earnings later this month. They've just been crushing it. And I, the valuation now is as attractive as it's been in a long time. They're doing a great job with their business. And, uh, but, Kudos to Guy. He really is. So, you know, I'm somewhat skeptical of the whole charting thing. Uh -huh. But I do see that there, there is value in it. And so yeah. learning. 
Courtney. Yeah, Ulta, I mean, has been a, a position that I liked for a long time. I, I do think that it's something that you want to own. Um, I do think that it's going to have a trend that's going to continue. They really hit um, kind of all spectrums of the income level. So regardless of what's happening with inflation, you can buy your grocery store makeup, the same place you can buy your high-end makeup there. And I think that's going to continue to benefit them, especially as they get into more Target stores. Um, I think this is going to be a longer-term story. Um, so I do like the fact that it's pulled back here. I do think it's something you want to own for the longer term. All right, coming up, Cannabis Crush shares of Trulieve losing its buzz after earnings were breaking down the quarter with CEO Kim Rivers. That's next. Much more Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stock truly lower today after Q1 results, a company falling short of revenue estimates but benefiting from record 420 sales and cost-cutting initiatives. The report comes as the Senate Banking Committee is set to take up a key piece of legislation that the cannabis industry views as a financial lifeline. Joining us to discuss all of this is truly CEO Kim Rivers. Kim, always great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, pricing has always been an issue or has been a, a real issue in, in recent quarters. And I'm wondering what you're seeing going on. I mean, I know that you're more insulated from the pressure in wholesale pricing, um, but there is a sort of a knock-on effect. I mean, if those prices go lower, branded prices also feel the pressure. So what are you, what are you experiencing right now? Yeah, so, I mean, we're certainly seeing continued pressure on wallet, um, which has continued from last year. Um, and we're seeing some trade down as consumers shift uh, to, val- to the value segment. Uh, certainly, that's our fastest growing segment across our portfolio. Um, but wh- I think the good news for cannabis is that we did have record-breaking um, traffic and transactions uh, for 420. Uh, we sold over uh, 386,000 units uh, that day. And so demand is still strong. Um, but we are certainly, as a cash business, we are s- certainly continuing continuing to see some wallet pressure happening um, across the country, along with some price compression, for sure. Hey, Kim, it's Tim. And, and cl- yeah, clearly no question about demand in the cannabis space. It, it's really more about profitability. Um, some of it that's very structural within the cannabis industry, some of it related to the illicit markets, some of it just related to companies' balance sheets. Congrats on being someone that has more flexibility than most in the cannabis space in terms of your balance sheet, in terms of your ability to actually generate operating you know, free cash flow from operations. How do you see that in the next 12 to 18 months playing out for Truly? Can you can you play offense here? Uh, I know your CapEx budget's been cut significantly. That's mostly is just a function of projects kind of running their course and actually now being in a position to see new supply come online. But I, you know, as someone that's in the middle of this, this industry uh, and, and, and invest in it as well, I, I, I kind of think it's a great time for companies with strong balance sheets to play offense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, look, um, having optionality at, at TrueLeaf has been a key uh, differentiator for us um, as long as we've been in business. And um, being in a situation where we are you know, able to eat what we kill um, also is, is really key for us. And that's certainly something that we're continuing to focus on. And um, to your point, Tim, we have we have spent um, you know, significant resources in building out our supply chain um, in advance of Catalyst. I mean, we've also are investing in Florida, for example, the ballot initiative there, which we've crossed enough signatures, over a million signatures for placement on the ballot, assuming Supreme Court approval, uh, which will be a major catalyst for us with over 40 percent of that market um, right now. And I'm um, continuing to invest, obviously, in stores and retail, our retail footprint there ahead of that coming online. Um, that being said, to your point, I think that the opportunity set as it relates to potential um, tech and strategic acquisitions remains interesting. Um, I think it's going to get more interesting um, over the next 12 to 18 months as we see uh, debt come due and you know access to capital continue to uh, be more sparse. Uh, for other companies in both private and public settings. Do you have a lot of lobbyists in Washington right now, Kim? <laughs> we do. Not enough. The banking industry yeah. <laughs> to the cannabis industry. 
Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, we do. Yes, we do. We're very excited about the hearing tomorrow. Um, as you noted, um, Melissa, tomorrow is a historic day and that we will have a Senate hearing um, on safe banking and, and expect um, to hopefully have a markup come out of that hearing, uh, which would put safe banking on the floor for a vote or scheduled actually teed up for a floor vote, which, um, of course, has not happened to date. We have passed and safe banking has passed the House numerous times, but um, to have it originate with bipartisan support from the Senate would be really important. Again, as a reminder, um, safe banking um, would provide safe harbor for banking and financial institutions to be able to bank cannabis. Um, it potentially could lead to having cash out of our dispensaries, so a more safe environment, and really a critical tool for access to capital, particularly for small and diverse businesses. So it's, it's really going to be um, important if we can get that across the finish line. Kim, thanks for joining us. Nice to see you. Kim Rivers, True Leaf. Grasso? Do you think this is going to work safe? Uh, I don't think it'll pass right now. I think you need a clean bill. And I think there's a lot of voices on this topic. And I, I don't think you will you see it pass. And when you talk about it passing the House, it didn't pass this House. And I think the Senate has some other stuff going on, too. Yeah, I agree. Um, and by the way, full disclosure, I'm long, truly, personally, and in my cannabis ETF. But I, I, I think this is exciting. This is bicameral uh, proposed. So both houses, uh, House and Senate, that, you know, Anyone that's been following this industry is not banking, sorry for the pun, on safe banking going through. But um, a narrow bill, Steve's talking about uh, a lot of people, including Chuck Schumer, have thrown everything in the kitchen sink in. Please don't do that. I think that's what we'll get it through. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade. Tim. A streaming outcast, seemingly, WBD, I think, is actually delevering and growing free cash flow better than the bigger players, WBD. Karen? Yes. Uh, Guy, really thanks for the guidance. You saved me a lot of money so far, but I, I can't wait anymore. I'm going to buy some Ulta. <laughs> Courtney? Uh, Disney, I, I think it's what you want to own for the long run. I'd buy on some weakness here. Steve Grasso? Apple on a breakout. I think it's going to be trading above 200 shortly. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.